Welcome back to all the listeners of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Morgan, and I am the Executive Director of WACNH and your host. This program dives into deeper discussions on top global issues, bringing you experts and unique insights into the issues that matter to you. Today, we have a special program that I'm very excited about. Thanks to technology, we were able to connect in with an American who has been living in Myanmar since 2016. This episode explores what life is like in this country, both before and after the coup of February 1. It is a deeply personal account and provides a unique perspective that you cannot get anywhere else. These are the types of conversations we strive to bring you, going beyond the headlines and talking about the real effect of events the news can only talk about on a surface level. I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I do, and that you take its message to heart. Please do send us your feedback by leaving a comment or rating on this episode. Myanmar, a country struggling to bring democracy to its people, has suffered a major setback. On February 1st, the military arrested members of parliament and the ruling party, claiming that fraudulent elections created an emergency situation that required action. After wresting control back from the civilian government, which had held power for right around 10 years, they are promising new elections and a return to civilian rule at some point. However, Outside observers and their own electoral commission have not found evidence of widespread fraud. In addition, the military has become increasingly heavy-handed in their response to the protest demanding the return of the government to civilian control. With estimates of at least 54 deaths at the hands of security personnel in the past month. As tensions continue to rise and the international pressure mounts to bring an end to this military coup, we want to provide you with some insights from a person living through this. We are only identifying her by her first name, Nicole, to protect our identity from potential repercussions, as she has been living and working in Myanmar since 2016. I met her first when she did an AmeriCorps year of service here in New Hampshire several years back, and we reconnected after the military takeover. To give you a little bit of background, Here's Nicole on how she came to live and work in this geopolitically important country. Yes, you're right. We met doing AmeriCorps in New Hampshire in Manchester. Still an experience that I, I do look back on fondly, especially in regards to the people I spent it with. Um, and, and definitely a shout out to AmeriCorps. I wouldn't be where I am now without it. Um, although maybe if being in a country with a coup is uh, your experience, <laughs> I don't know if maybe that's a good sell. But yeah, AmeriCorps is really essential, I think. Let me do that shout out for those who want to have a career with a larger purpose. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to get started in the nonprofit world um, and in sort of the purpose-driven world um, without that stepping stone of AmeriCorps. So great that we were able to meet through it and also that um, I think that it really led to the careers that we have. So I did, uh, as you said, I spent a year in Manchester doing AmeriCorps, and then uh, that experience led me to work for an international organization in Boston, 
And so it's an international organization which does a lot of work in other countries around education and health systems. And eventually, after a couple of years in that organization, I, I started working on a project supporting education for people in Myanmar and also Myanmar refugees on the border right uh, that they have with Thailand. And was able to make my first trip to Myanmar in 2015 uh, through that job. Decided this is the career I want. So I got my master's degree uh, in international education policy. Uh, and after that, I was able to move to Myanmar and begin working, and I've been here since 2016. A lot has changed in the world since 2016, and so I wondered what has changed in Myanmar in that time frame. What we have heard about the country over the past few years has not been positive through the treatment of Rohingya Muslims, which we will get to a little bit later. What has it been like living there in this time of great change? It's actually a really great country to live in. So it of course, it's really interesting. Um, so much has changed just while I've been here. Yeah, I, I think that prevalence of, of internet grew massively. Just the changes you see in terms of embracing, I guess, the world in some ways and being able to do that through increased internet prevalence is really remarkable. And, and I'll say that it is a country with some of the most kind and generous people I've ever met. So just as an example, uh, I think it's not uncommon, certainly amongst my friends and even for myself, we have left maybe a wallet or a cell phone behind at a restaurant or in a taxi and people will go out of their way to return it to you. So it, it's really a remarkable place. I'm not sure that there are many places in the world like it, and it's really been excellent to live here. It may have been a great place to live, and many of the factors mentioned have not changed. One big thing changed last month, however. With the military coup and resulting protests, life in Myanmar has gotten a lot more difficult. It has become dangerous to speak out against the coup, particularly if you are a foreigner, and with the brutal history of the military from not that long ago, it is amazing to see so many people out in the streets fighting for democracy. It must have been difficult for everyone to live through this overthrow. Yeah, I mean, as if the COVID-19 pandemic, which, which did come here in August of last year, wasn't already a strange enough experience with everyone here, like in other places, staying home with businesses being closed. This has truly led us to extraordinary times um, and in rather unfortunate ways. So I think the biggest thing you notice, the biggest change, even just within one morning when the coup started on 1st February, was just the emotions here. Here in Yangon, throughout the country, just an entire change in mindset where people who had seen so much growth um, and, and so much freedom during the 10 years of democracy, all of a sudden very much feared and, and were rightfully angry at the prospect of losing that. So it, yeah, I, immediately within the, the week afterwards, there were mass protests um, across the country, peaceful protests. And there's also been a, a civil disobedience movement, uh, is what they call it, or CDM, uh, where it was led by the medical professionals who already uh, had gone through so much with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and medical facilities that were understaffed and under-resourced. And they were the ones who first said, we are not going to work as civil servants under this military regime. And we're going to sit out, we're going to continue to provide medical services to the population as much as possible, but we're not going to legitimize this military regime. So you've had this CDM civil disobedience movement expanding to more and more people. So for example, I work in education here and many of the people I care about, teachers, um, are also participating and, and putting their livelihoods on the line, um, their professions and, and even their lives. 
So I, I think that's been one other major change, whereas, you know, things were already closed in a lot of places for COVID-19. Um, this has seen an even wider closing of, of services um, and, and really having people instead go out to protest the military. And they would say that they're fighting for hope for, for their future for, and for their children's future. This is certainly not the first go around with protests for many of these people. However, many of the young people who have lived under democracy for a greater percentage of their lives are in the streets as well worried about the future. They have created some interesting new techniques while relying on tactics that helped them bring about democracy in 2009. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's led by very disparate generations. And, and that's one thing that they remark upon um, is you have people who have been through this before. Um, so there were mass protests in 1988 and 2007 um, against the military. And, and so folks who have gone through that before and, and are continuing to fight against the military regime. But then you also have the new generation, the Gen Zers, and seeing their sort of creative approach and, and that they're more in, connected uh, to the rest of the world. They're using social media to advance their cause. So certainly it's been very interesting to see and very creative um, as an example on one day Suddenly, across Myanmar, and particularly in Yangon, um, all of the cars just stopped working in the middle of major intersections. And no explanation, couldn't turn on. Um, and really, of course, this was a, a protest technique um, to block the movement of, of police and soldiers um, to the peaceful protest sites, and to also like help prevent um, people going to their jobs and supporting the civil disobedience movement. And, and it has, thankfully, um, seen fewer people injured and killed, but, but still, um, I think there's a lot of fear of violence because um, in the past, uh, certainly it has been used. The military um, has cracked down and, and killed many people as part of this when, when they protested against military power. And they have used live ammunition against protesters and, and two teenagers already have been killed. Um, as still a lot of a lot of bravery and courage among protesters, I, I would say, uh, given the threat of violence, but, but not without tragedy, for sure. Unfortunately, since Nicole and I spoke, the military junta has cracked down even harder on the protesters. In just two days, more than 50 protesters were killed, security forces used live ammunition more often, and their tactics have become more aggressive. Despite regional and international efforts to prevent a crackdown, the military has reverted back to their old methods of suppression. However, none of this should be surprising. The military in Myanmar has a long history of violence against its people, whether it is trying to maintain control of a dictatorship or exterminating the Rohingya Muslims. They have not shied away from using force in the past. It is through this lens that the people of Myanmar are risking their lives to protect the democracy they have worked so hard to create. It, understandably, has to be extremely difficult to put words to the experiences on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think I spend every day being extremely concerned for the people who are out demonstrating, given the history of violence, but also completely in awe and inspired um, by the bravery. And yeah, it's, it's certainly something that is interesting, but also I think it's so hard to describe because it, it's such a complex sort of like mess of, of feelings that you have um, experiencing this. Nicole's difficulty in describing her experience is certainly understandable. Growing up in the United States, one never thought about the possibility of an overthrow of the government, 
at least not until recently. Having to protest for the return of democracy and to put your life and livelihood on the line is not something you experience lightly. It is beyond disappointing that this can happen anywhere in the world, and no matter the writing on the wall, it is always shocking when it does happen. As a foreigner witnessing this all firsthand, it must be disorienting. But in addition, there are special precautions everyone must take. Yeah, I mean, frankly, uh, if I was already not going out for COVID-19, this is really added to it. I mean, again, the protests themselves are peaceful. The protesters are very committed to to nonviolence. So at least in regards to protests, there's really no threat there. Simply um, what happens if if the other side uh, decides to use violence. But yeah, it's it's basically sort of stay where you are as much as possible. Don't go out. Already true for COVID-19. So that part isn't too different. But yeah, also then um, taking care of it in terms of what you put out publicly. And in particular, um, I work in the humanitarian space where we do have a principle of neutrality. So at least in my professional life, I have to be very careful about maintaining a degree of neutrality and impartiality. I will take another moment here to thank Nicole for agreeing to speak with me about her experiences. It certainly was not a decision taken lightly, but it is important to get real on-the-ground insights into these global events where we can. Speaking of her work, working in the humanitarian space becomes all the more difficult when a country is under stress like this. Prior to the coup, humanitarian aid was given out to over 3,300,000 people in the country who had been displaced by conflict. The military has seen traditionally been distrustful of the aid organizations in the country. This could cause a number of issues for Nicole's work. Yeah, I mean, I think that at least in the international community and and for those who fund uh, international projects, there's a recognition that humanitarian assistance um, still is required. Um, And and from those organizations doing humanitarian assistance, um, I think they're also trying to continue to provide any critical and life-saving activities. So for example, if someone has been displaced due to armed conflict or because of um, other violence, then they may be located in a camp where basic services aren't available except through um, local or international organizations. Um, So to the best of uh, everyone's ability, those things are still continuing. It may be possible, maybe likely, that the... We've seen before that particularly in some locations, the military doesn't always grant the access to locations that uh, may be required for humanitarian services. So I think that's one difficulty and fear that will happen, that we can't provide life-saving services to those populations because we can't access them. Part of the reason that so many people in Myanmar are in need of humanitarian aid is because of the military's brutal, some would say genocidal, treatment of Rohingya Muslims in the country. Myanmar was most recently in the news in 2017 when there was certainly what the UN has has described as a crimes against humanity against the Rohingya population located in Rakhine State in the western part of the country. And um, over 800,000 people fled into Bangladesh um, as a result of that violence. This violence included burning of villages, killing civilians, including at least 730 children under the age of five, and the rape of women and girls. Human Rights Watch has counted at least 288 villages that were either partially or fully burned by the military. For them, the coup is especially dangerous. What is clear is that the people who were directly 
uh, responsible, according to the UN, for those crimes against humanity are the ones who are now in power. And, and the future can't be good for the Rohingya as long as they are. However, it seems that things were not much better under the civilian-led government, who were in power at the time. I think that people were surprised, and we've seen that the leader who's now been detained, Da Aung San Suu Kyi, did, did come to the defense of the military on that occasion. This leads to a wider discussion of the challenges that the Myanmar government faced under the joint civilian-military government that was trying to transition to democracy. Perhaps if Aung San Suu Kyi had stood up to the military without strong international support, this coup would have happened even sooner. On the flip side of that argument, it is a matter of consideration here. I mean, for example, um, the international community called for boycotts of military businesses following that. And now that after this, the military had taken power, you do see that uh, boycott actually occurring in Myanmar. But but the question is there that um, what might have been avoided if, if that had occurred earlier. As Martin Luther King Jr. stated, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This is particularly poignant these days as dictators are on the rise everywhere. As democratic backsliding occurs, even here in the United States, it is important to support people's struggle for freedom around the world. This does not mean military intervention into every issue but that we as Americans and individuals can work to support others around the world, which in turn can help us learn how to strengthen our own democracy. Nicole shared with me a number of great ways that listeners can get involved to support the protesters in their efforts to overthrow a military dictatorship. So, so there are things you can do. And in fact, uh, they don't take too much time. Um, I know that we have our own problems in our day-to-day lives and in our country, but uh, it, it would be a false trade-off to think that that doesn't mean we can do more um, for people outside our country and, and those we may not know personally. So simple things that can be done. First, the U.S. has had a strong response. They've imposed some targeted sanctions against military officials. So simply keeping it on the radar of elected officials is something that you hear for a lot. Please continue to have international attention, government support from other areas to um, pressure the military to step aside and, and negotiate for a more democratic and, and prosperous future. Very easy. Make a phone call or an email to your elected official, um, even to the president's office if you like, and say, yes, we continue to support um, action for democracy in Myanmar. Um, and, and if you want to call for specific actions, I think that what you hear here is targeted sanctions against those responsible for the coup and continuing to work and build um, alliances with other countries um, to oppose what has happened and, and restore democracy. There's also a website. So as I mentioned, uh, many people here are doing the civil disobedience movement. They're risking their livelihoods and their lives to try to achieve a better future. So there are websites, uh, at least one website I can recommend um, where all of the fundraisers have already been vetted and ensured that it is going to the right people. So it's called isupportmyanmar.com. Very easy to go to. You can donate to any of those. They are reputable. Uh, and those funds are generally either going to those who are participating in the civil disobedience movement or to those who may be affected by it because they were already at risk um, due to being in poverty. You can find a link to this website in the description of this episode. I highly recommend you check it out.
And the last thing I would suggest is simply to continue paying attention and yeah, keep track of what's happening here. And, and it also is helpful to show the media organizations that you care, you know, click on the links, scroll through, get them the advertising money, interact with their social media posts about it. And it, yeah, um, just demonstrate that there is um, a concern for this in the United States and, and among all of us. Hopefully you don't find yourself asking this question, but perhaps you have a friend who would need convincing on the importance of this and other international issues. Nicole has some ideas for ways in which you can get people of all stripes to care. Yeah, and and let me say, I mean, first of all, sort of in my heart, I, I hope that um, people are motivated um, by by simply being able to support people, no matter where they're from, to achieve a better future, to have hope for for their lives, and and that their children will live better lives than them. And that in the U.S., we we value democracy. I think that we are especially looking at it now with fresh eyes within our country and in the value of democracy and what it's needed to preserve it. So I do hope people are motivated to, to take that perspective for people throughout the world. And, and in fact, your actions, however small, given the violence that's likely against protesters, as long as these people are in power, just based on historical facts, your, your actions, any support could indeed help to, to save a life, especially considering already young lives and, and others were lost. If that is not enough for your <clears throat> friend to motivate them, how about this? Actually, the way that the military um, justifies taking power is, is to make very similar election fraud claims that have been happening in the U.S. in the 2020 election. So already we're connected in some ways, you know, the, the global stage is quite small at this point. We are interconnected. It's perhaps easier to see that from, from here than anywhere else. So yes, freedom anywhere affects freedom everywhere. You know, the, the well-being of people anywhere affects us everywhere. But I would really encourage you to, to stand up for democracy, for a better future. And, and if you're not motivated simply by or if you need additional motivation, maybe, than just, you know, caring about people on the other side of the world. Um, you can also look at the fact that Myanmar is a very strategic geopolitical location. And if the people in power continue to be in power, it will be more aligned to China. Whereas before, as a democracy, it was more an ally of the United States. So that also affects, you know, our, our place in the world in regards to Myanmar's future. And, and if you want to talk economy also in regards to our ability to expand trade. So there, there are a lot of good reasons, but certainly the ability to contribute to improving lives here to, to show that we have solidarity with democracies, no matter where they are in the world. Um, I hope that's at the top of the list. I want to thank Nicole for taking the time to talk with me all the way from Myanmar in these crazy times for the country and the world. It is through her eyes and ears that we can get this unique insight into life under a month-old dictatorship. This is valuable to ensure understanding and to hopefully help lead change in the lives of millions of people, starting with small actions taken by our listeners. Wherever you are in the world, please do consider helping to stand up for democracy. Please continue to remain engaged in international issues and learn as much as you can about what is going on in the world. A dictator's best friend is an uninformed populace, which is why so many of them restrict access to the world and the internet. In addition, you can learn about ways in which democracy is strengthened in other countries, which can help you strengthen democracy here at home. While we sometimes 
may act like it, we do not have all the answers to all the problems in the world, and we can learn a lot from our neighbors across the globe. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion today and that it inspires you. This has been The Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan is our producer, host, researcher, audio technician, graphic designer, and more. As always, our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude is When It All Falls by Ketza. Please do leave us a rating on this episode and any comments. We would love to hear what topics you are interested in learning more about on future episodes. Until next month.